0: Welcome, friends. This is the April Extra AF. I'm Hi! Kina And I'm Ashley. Welcome, welcome. This is our extra bonus episode where we talk about things that happened this month that made history, things that happened this month that was history, and then we read your emails. Yay! I'm so excited. Oh, Me too. And almost all the emails, all but one, are Patreon fans.
1: Ooh, so we're yeah. having like a real Patreon party. Yeah, for those listening at home and not watching, we're wearing crowns.
0: See, <sighs> listen tiktok has changed our lives and i don't know if it's for the better but it's changed them everybody's just wearing crowns on there we decided we had to have one
1: <laughs> yes we're wearing crowns because we're yeah. awesome
0: i feel powerful i feel pretty and i feel like i could conquer the world right now with my uh, evil yes. queen crown I, it's very spiky yes in honor of vlad kitty Got my little spikes. I dig it. And mine is like very fairy princess and I feel like Tinkerbell
1: and I cook dinner in it. Wow. <laughs>
0: I have already taken a bath in a crown.
1: Yes. Oh.
0: It was incredible. Like a bubble bath in my crown and my Netflix. It was amazing. Highly recommend it. 10 out of 10. Chef's okay. Kids. New goal. Getting a bath bomb that turns the water red so I can
1: live my Elizabeth Bathory dreams.
0: Ooh, I dig it. It's going to happen. And shameless plug, we have decided, since a bunch of us have crowns now, that on Patreon we are going to do just a freaking adult bomb-ass tea party over Zoom, wearing our crowns. We're going to dress up. And we have crowns for everybody. So if you want to join that party, join Patreon. And if you are on Patreon, get a crown. Yes, we're going to do it. We'll figure it out. They're surprisingly cheap for how nice they are. They're heavy. They're legit. They have really nice crystals. And both of mine were under 20. Not sponsored by crowns, but should be. Real talk. Oh yay. In the comments, Dion and Michelle, Patreon fam, are wearing their crowns too. This is incredible. We're starting a thing and I love it. (laughs) I
1: am here for it.
0: I can't tell you how just amazing I feel. Yeah.
1: Like this is like the serotonin boost that I needed like in my twenties.
0: It's true. I was sitting out in the yard yesterday, just sprawled out and see. It's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I need the serotonin. (laughs) go away (laughs) don't judge me
1: (laughs) so do you want to go first with yes i do so i have a cool article all right so i am doing this month in history news so this is fascinating to me it's kind of a short article But the title is prehistoric cannibal victim found in Death Cave, ID'd as a young girl. So the individual was formerly known as the boy of Grandolina, which is awesome in and of itself. About 800,000 years ago in what is now Spain, cannibals devoured an early human child who became known as the boy of Grandolina. And we were discussing today in the group chat that all roads lead to cannibalism. It's true. Episode and one. Here we are. Yeah. I'm assuming already that these people just didn't plant enough trees. It's a real problem. But new analysis of these ancient remains have revealed a surprising twist. Ooh. The child was a girl. Ooh. The child was a Homo antecessor. Antecessor. I should have practiced that word. antecessor. <laughs> yes. An early hominin species that lived in Europe between 1.2 million and 800,000 years ago. Wow. Discovered in 1994 in the Grandolina Cave in northern Spain's Atapuerca Mountains, the species is known primarily from fragments of bones and teeth, which hampered researchers' efforts to determine the sex of the individual's. Recently, scientists tested a new technique using a type of dental analysis that had successfully identified males and females and other early human species. They examined teeth from two grandolina individuals, H1 and H3. Mm H1, whose remains defined um, the species, was about 13 years old at the time of death and was long – wow, words are hard (laughs) – was long presumed to be male. The second individual, H3, the boy of Grandolina, died at the age of 11 years old and was also thought to be male. Microscopic analysis of the tooth structure for the new study revealed variations between H1's and H3's teeth that researchers identified as sexually dimorphic, dif- differing in appearance between males and females. Based on comparisons with teeth from humans and other hominins, the scientists determined that H1 was male, but H3 was likely female. Wow. Wow. I'll go on. But like the reason that this is kind of big is because there have been since the discovery of this cave, there have been poems and stories written about the boy of Grandolina. Oh, but it's actually a girl.
0: That's so cool.
1: That's why I like find it really fascinating. Anyway, certain skeletal features such as pelvis shape, size of the brow ridge, and robustness of bone where muscles attach can reveal clues about the sex of extinct human relatives. But these features only indicate the sex of adult skeletons. And about 75% of the Grandolino's remains belong to pre-adolescent children. Oh. What's more, those cave skeletons were highly fragmented, likely because they were cannibalized. So like their bones were broken apart to drink the marrow, which is- Horrifying.
0: (laughs) Or kind of awesome.
1: (laughs) Terrifyingly awesome. Teeth, however, are often well-preserved in ancient archaeological sites. Other researchers have previously analyzed canine teeth to determine sex in humans with an accuracy of up to 92.3% in populations of Neanderthals from a site in Kropina, Croatia, and earlier hominins from Spain's Sima de los Huesos, or Pit of Bones, site in Atapuerca. Tooth crowns are fully formed by age six, and since older children typically have at least some of their adult teeth, analysis of dental features can be especially useful in paleoanthropology for estimating the sex of immature individuals and could be applied to the children's remains from Grandolina, um, the scientist reported March 10th in the Journal of Anthropological Sciences. Oh, wow. So for the new study, the researchers looked up upper canines, the most sexually dimorphic teeth from H1 and H3. Using high-resolution x-ray scans, they measured tissue volume and surface area of the two teeth and compared them with existing tooth scans from modern humans, remains from the Kropina site, and from Atapuerica's pit of bones. The study authors discovered that the canine from H3 had more surface enamel than H1's canine, a feature associated with female teeth. But the boy of Grandolina would really have been the girl of Grandolina, lead study author Cecilia Garcia Campos, a physical anthropologist of CENIEH, said in the statement, the girl would have been between 9 and 11 years old when she was killed and eaten, according to the study, and she wasn't the only victim. The remains from 22 H antecessor individuals in Grandolina displayed signs of being cannibalized with bones showing cuts. Fragments where they had been cracked open to expose the marrow, and even tooth marks, live science previously reported. One possible explanation for this ancient cannibalism is that humans were easier to catch, which is horrifying, (gasps) and more nutritious than other animals, researchers wrote in 2019 in the Journal of Human Evolution.
0: What? That's horrifying. that's the reason it's person
1: to catch. Yeah, we're slow, so they ate humans because we're slow. Oh, um, compared really with other up. types of prey, a lot of food could be obtained from humans at low
0: cost. Oh, <gasps> that's that's where uh, well, I don't know what's worse, honestly. So, yeah, that's the girl of Grandolina
1: who, uh,
0: yeah. I got so into the science behind the teeth that when you said, when she got eaten, I'd forgotten that this was about cannibalism and it shocked me all over again. <laughs> yeah, part of me was like, maybe she died and then they ate her because, yeah, like, or like a like- party style for survival. But now it's just kind of like a horror movie where we're the greatest prey <laughs> and they're just
1: hunting you down for sport. Like, humans are at the top and bottom of the food chain. And like the fact know. that like seventy five percent of the people there are children because children are slower than adults, oh. yeah, that's that,
0: it's horrifying. I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know. There's no words. Yeah. <laughs> that is nightmare fuel, really.
1: Yeah, it's very, it's very nightmare inducing. I didn't read that part when I read the <laughs> article. I just read about the whole tooth thing. I didn't, re- I didn't get to the part about humans being slow, so they're good prey. It's a little like Hannibal Lecter for me.
0: Oh, that's actually really fascinating. I don't think that in anything that I've read about cannibalism, it has come up that humans are just slower than animals. And that's why it worked out. This, Yeah. This changes everything. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. That's the first time that I've ever
1: seen where someone's like, yeah, humans are just slow. So they ate them because it just costs less energy.
0: But humans are crafty, but if they're children, they probably can't overpower or fight back. Yeah, like they were probably like, here, little Timmy, go into this cave. It's safe
1: in here. Rock. Like.
0: I was really hoping this was like they were already sick or hurt or, you know, an accident happened and it was survival. They died in their sleep and then were used for food. But no. this That's dark. Yeah. (laughs) That's twisted. A little bit dark. Uh feel a little bad about making so many cannibal jokes in the beginning. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was do. I was thinking, like, I should make a sticker that says all roads lead to cannibalism. And now I'm like, do I really want to do that? <laughs> yes, you do, because I need one on my car. <laughs> I mean, that would Maybe get people perfect. to stop tailgating you for sure. True. People think twice about cutting you off.
1: Yeah, I would probably get a call from security at work when they saw my car. Probably.
0: Well, that was incredible. Thanks for sharing, even though it's horrifying. <laughs> right? Even though I'm horrified. Oh, uh, that's history for you, right? So interesting. So horrible. Oh, wrong notes. So for... <laughs> <laughs> I am such a professional. So a lot of things happened in April. Honestly, a lot of things. Yeah. But a lot of things were really dark. And a lot of really terrible things happened in April. So I chose not to do that. <laughs> I am... um. Still still in the dark and twisty place, so I decided to go with something more enjoyable, something that we both love, yes. libraries. Sweet. Turns out the Library of Congress was formed in April. Oh. Woo! Ooh, what what? So this comes from the DC IST. It's Washington's premier news site or whatever. So. Okay. Here we go. It's called 10 Facts You Probably Didn't Know About the Library of Congress. And we'll see how many we know. (laughs) It's like, bet we're librarians. (laughs) Yeah, I'm probably not going to know any. Let's be real. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So a granite building with a golden torch topping its stone, the Library of Congress is tucked just east of the Capitol. Its ornate gingerbread exterior, which FDR apparently described it as such, is elaborately decorated in the interior. And it's meant to celebrate the many rich literary treasures found inside. The world's largest library, which is actually spread across several buildings, likely has a vast trove of facts you probably didn't know, and here are just ten. I didn't realize it was the largest library in the world, and I had to triple-check that because I am like, well, that's all right. But it is.
1: Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, go I don't as know it. what I thought the largest library was, but I don't think I realized it was Library of Congress. But that
0: makes sense. So, number one, the library actually was created to provide books solely for the use of Congress Yep. on April 24th, eighteen hundred. President John Adams signed a law providing $5,000 in appropriations to acquire books for the use of members of Congress. Hold on. I have my conversion calculator up because that's something I just readily have available. I did know that
1: fact because it was on one of my tests in uh, grad school.
0: Oh, that's cool. I love the inflation calculator. It makes me so happy. 105,000 today. So that's a chunk of change. That is a chunk of change. And that money was used to acquire books for the use of members of Congress. The library was originally housed in spacious central rooms in the Capitol. A plaque now marks the approximate location of the first library. It also states grimly that, quote, books in the library were used to kindle the flames that destroyed this section of the building, end quote, in the War of 1812. God damn it, war. You just burn everything down. In 1802, President Thomas, fuck that guy Jefferson, signed a bill into law that widened library privileges to the president and vice president and the rest of the executive branch. Oh, because of course he did. He only allowed himself in there. And he was like, well, I guess I'll let that other guy in too. God, what a. I bet they had sleepovers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the episode that comes out after this, we talk about Thomas Jefferson a lot. And it's just a lot of rage. (laughs) Man, that guy. The nerve of him. All right. Still, the law specified that, quote, no map shall be permitted to be taken out of said library by any person, nor any book, except by the president and vice president of the United States and members of the Senate and House of Representatives for the time being, end quote. So I guess they left it open for change. Mm-hmm. Okay. The use of the library eventually expanded beyond government officials and their families. Technically, according to the Library of Congress historian John Cole, which dream job. Public access to the library has been permitted as early as 1830 because it was a publicly accessible building, but it wasn't until the opening of reading rooms in the new building in 1897 that the library officially began publicizing access to materials. I've never been, but I really want to go. I really want to go. I really want to get a library card there. Yeah, right. So after the War of 1812 decimated the library's original collection, Thomas Jefferson let Congress name its price to purchase his private library. Hmm. The warring Brits may have taken advantage of the massive fire hazard that a large room full of books posed when they set fire to the unfinished building in August of 1814. Much of the Capitol was destroyed, along with most of the library's collection. That always kills me when people go straight for the library. Yeah, it's dumb. <sighs> I mean, I get it, like one way to really take down a nation or a country is to kill their culture. So I I get why it's a target, but it's still heart wrenching. Yeah, it takes away their humanity. Yeah, it does. Thomas Jefferson was so stricken by the loss of the library that he offered the sale of his personal library to replace the books. He couldn't have been that upset or he would have just given it to him, right?
1: Yeah, like I like how he's like, oh no, you lost all your books. (laughs)
0: How
1: much money are you going to give me?
0: He said in a letter dated okay. September 21st, 1814 to Samuel H. Smith, quote, I have been 50 years making it and spared no pains, opportunity or expense to make it what it is, end quote. So dramatic. For so real. expensive was his collection that Jefferson estimated 18 or 20 wagons would place it in Washington in a single trip of a fortnight. The actual plan was that 10 wagons, which could carry 2,500 pounds each, would transport the library. Jefferson did not name his price, choosing to allow Congress to determine what they would pay for his offerings. Congress accepted and set the price at twenty three thousand nine hundred and fifty dollars for the six thousand four hundred and eighty seven volumes. And let's see what that is in conversion later. One dollar. <laughs> the conversion would be three hundred and sixty thousand dollars today. That's ridiculous. That's a lot of money.
1: That's a lot of money.
0: And spoiler alert, I learned Sunday that or this coming Sunday, that Thomas Jefferson did not know how to manage his finances. So this man had that kind of money and he still squandered it. Jesus. This is the face of not surprised. Yeah. Like I, I dislike him on a lot of levels. But then I, when I vision him, I see Defeat Diggs and I love him. Mm, true I feel like he softened me a bit but this is bringing me back down to reality welcome to reality (laughs) it wasn't entirely without controversy though according to the National Archives 71 Federalists opposed the purchase objecting to quote its extent and the cost of purchase the nature of the selection embracing too many works in foreign languages some too philosophical a character and some otherwise objectionable (laughs) Okay. So on January 30th, 1815, President James Madison signed into law the bill authorizing the purchase. Jefferson himself inventoried and numbered his library. Of course he did. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The next little fun fact. Another fire in 1851 ravaged the library's collection, leading to the design of a fireproof cast iron room in the Capitol. Well, that's cool. I didn't know that either. I bet that room was hot. Oh. Yeah, probably not enjoyable. Farts. (laughs) (laughs) A faulty chimney flue took the blame for the devastating blaze on Christmas Eve in 1851 that burned more than half the library's 55,000-volume collection. An estimated 35,000 books, including nearly two-thirds of Jefferson's library, were lost. Oh, that's so sad. That led architect of the Capitol, Thomas U. Walter, to design a new fireproof cast iron room in the Capitol's west front for the library. It opened on August 23rd, 1853. Hmm. And he also designed the Capitol's cast iron dome. The ironclad library was widely admired and drew plenty of tourists. That is until it was dismantled in 1901 and it was sold for scrap, according to the roll call story in 2017. And then Lodge Cast Iron Company was creating No kidding. As the years went on, the books started piling up literally. In 1884, Washington Post described how, quote, long years ago, the shelves were filled, supplementary ones necessarily of wood have been introduced wherever possible and books are piled in great heaps all over the floor, allowing scarce space for the library attendants to move from point to point, end quote. Even so, some lawmakers were opposed to the idea of building a separate building, no matter how badly the space was needed. That makes sense if you've worked in a library and trying to get government people to help you in your your library. (sighs) Yep. I mean, I've been city government, but I... I, The naysayers lost out and a number of wild proposals were submitted in a design contest. One rejected idea was to, quote, honeycomb the dome of the Capitol with book stacks. Oh, that would have been kind of cool. That would have been kind of cool. Huh. I'm down with that. I am too. A 1937 Guide to the City produced by the Works Works Progress. Why can't I say that? Yep. Works progress. progress Administration said other rejected designs are reminiscent of a cathedral, or perhaps that of the kind of a love child of the Capitol and the Eisenhower Executive Office building. Lots of really cool designs. Congress selected a design submitted by John L. Smithmeyer and Paul J. Peltz that evoked the Paris Opera House. I didn't right. know that was the inspiration. I didn't either. So it cost roughly six point five million dollars to build at that time. Holy shit, what is that today? <laughs> All right, so that'd be like 207 million from six time. She she's expansive. Yeah, she's expansive. The 1937 guide Sassily declared that, quote, in its day, the library building was hailed a masterpiece of architecture, but to modern eye, it might celebrate this monument of a Victorian era, kind of inexcusably overdone. <laughs> That's kind of snobby. Yeah. Imagine being so proud of it and be like, we have created the greatest thing ever in the United States. People you know, being like, Ugh, no, look <laughs> those floors. Yeah. Victorian. Ew, why would you yeah. do that? <laughs> Ew, David. <laughs> Ew, David. <laughs> By the 1920s, however, the library was again in need of extra space. President Hubert, huber. <laughs>
1: Her, <laughs> Herbert, Herber.
0: Herbert Hoover signed a bill into law in 1930 to appropriate funding for the construction of what was originally dubbed the Annex, now the John Adams Building. It opened on January 1st, th- or 1939, according to the architect of the Capitol, and it has 180 miles of shelving.
1: Okay. That's a lot of shelves. Do they have like a Segway or like a golf cart?
0: <laughs> that would be awesome. Oh my god! Right? Because that's a lot of walking, and I just
1: our chief of police on campus has a motorized scooter. And every time I see him, I yell, "Do a kickflip!" And he hates it.
0: <laughs> I think it's hilarious. So do the puppies. They're very yes,
1: I would love
0: to have a Segway to ride in the library. I think it'd be really fun. I think it'd be so fun. I need to Google that. They have to have something. Yeah. I'm sure they have a system of kind of like the bank where you can put things in it and it shoots it somewhere. I'm sure they have to have something. So about 20 years later in 1960, Congress appropriated more funds for a third building, which opened in 1980 and is called the James Madison Memorial Building in honor of the fourth president and the father of the constitution. The building is the largest library structure in the world with 1.5 million square feet of space. That is so big. The library completed an underground rapid transit literary line. Okay, that just answered my question. They do have an underground system. I knew they had to have something. Hmm. So, even though the Library of Congress would be located just across the street, a tunnel was constructed and an electric conveyor system developed so it would easily send books back and forth. Look, if I worked in a library that had a tunnel
1: system, I would so quickly become the Phantom of the Opera. (laughs)
0: the librarian of the tunnels is here to deliver a washington post article on september 13 1895 described a new system the tunnel is six feet high and four feet wide so you can't be very claustrophobic to doable i just have to duck The crown won't fit. We'll have to just, <laughs> we have to make some changes. So as easily to admit a man in case of any tie-up or rapid transit literally line, it explains, it runs about 1,100 feet and the so-called car, it's in quotes, could travel a distance in two or three minutes. So that's pretty fast for the 1800s. That is. I'm oh. impressed.
1: I hmm. just picture that scene from Austin Powers where he's trying to turn the little car around in the tunnel and he gets stuck. <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: so the librarian of congress at the time told the post that quote a book can be received at the capitol in five minutes after the order is sent from there from the library that's some fast service
1: that's awesome
0: even for today
1: i want that job and i want a tunnel harley
0: (laughs) requests for volumes were sent by pneumatic tubes oh like the bank i was right and now i knew it Later, the John Adams building was also connected to the main building by a mnemonic tube system, which enabled books to be placed in leather pouches and whisked across the street in impressive 28 seconds. This is all very impressive for the 19th century. Yeah, it really is. I'm really impressed. And as Atlas Obscura recounts, the original book tunnel was lost in the 2000s. Damn it. When the precious subterranean space was needed for... A visitor center? What? Why? No! Rude. No! Find somewhere else. Why would you do that? My tunnel! We want our tunnel back. (laughs) So, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were housed in the library from 1921 to 1952. September 1921, President Warren Harding issued an executive order to transfer the original copies of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the Library of Congress from the State Department. His executive order explained that the move came at the request of the Secretary of State. Oh no, these monuments. What's that word? Am I am I dumb? Da- am I the dumb? It's it looks like monuments, but it's a U monuments. I want to Google that. I don't feel like I'm the dumb, but I've never seen this word in my life monuments it's a document or record especially one kept in an archive listen i've been in archive classes and nobody's used this word before same yeah it's muni muniment
1: monument
0: monument like munitions but in building it's believed to not be as safe as a depository as the library of congress so they moved everything over there so okay the article in the National Archives Prologue magazine in 2002 detailed the humble transfer. Quote: The next day, Librarian of Congress Herbert Putnam went to the State Department, signed a receipt, placed the Declaration and the Constitution on a pile of leather U.S. mail sacks. They used it as a cushion. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, okay, Anywhere. okay. I okay. thought he was just like <laughs> cataloging on Toss, that pile over there. Toss it over there, and so it was a Model <laughs> T <T4> four <laughs> truck. And he returned them to the Library of Congress and placed them in a safe place in his office. It was just in his office. Okay. Nicolas Cage could have stole that so easy. Right. Somebody call Nicolas Cage. (laughs) (laughs) Congress appropriated $12,000 to create a special exhibit for the documents, which opened in 1924. It was the first time the Constitution had been placed on exhibit, according to the prologue. I guess I just assumed that it was always somewhere where people could see it, but I did too. The exhibit was short-lived, however, as Congress began appropriate funding for the National Archives building. A tug of war over the documents nearly ensued when President Herbert Hoover declared in 1933 his intention to enshrine the documents within the archives after its completion. The Librarian of Congress, Herbert Putnam again, dug in, reportedly saying that Hoover made a mistake and the documents remained at the Library of Congress until they were sent to Fort Knox for safekeeping in 1941 as America entered World War II. So that makes sense that when we're in a great, like a world war, it would be locked down literally in four yeah. Knox. Wow. This is way more interesting than I thought it was. I'm so glad I <laughs> picked it. <laughs> <laughs> the documents returned after the war with a new exhibit in the Library of Congress and the new librarian of Congress, Luther Evans, and the new archivist, Wayne Grover, met and quietly worked behind the scenes to transfer the documents for a display at the National Archives along with the <laughs> Bill of Rights. Okay. Congress unanimously approved the transfer on April 30th, 1952, according to the Washington Post. The transfer occurred in December of that year, and it would be a spectacle of pomp and circumstance and security. The Washington Post says that ahead of the move, the armored cars transporting the documents were escorted by tanks, armed guards, and the military. That's a world away from just tossing in the back of the truck. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. it first
1: moved and now throw it, it has, on some leather.
0: It has some armed guards now. And the building's original design called for a copper dome and a flame of knowledge atop of it to be covered in gold leaf. But a history of the Library of Congress says, quote, Weather and the chemical effects of the 19th century method of tinning the copper beneath the gold combined to produce perforations in the copper. And the restoration undertaken in 1931 replaced the leaking copper dome with a new ungilded one. The dome was allowed to acquire its patina to blend in better and with its granite building. The I fresh love gold the
1: copper patina. Oh, right? So
0: fancy. The fresh gold leaf was placed on the flame during the restoration effort in 1980. Another restoration project led the removal of the original gilded flame in 1996, and it was placed in the architect of Capitol's archival warehouse in Fort Meade. Hmm. Okay. Cool. Man, all these forts got cool shit in them. They do. Start researching that. Who's got what? I need to know. I need... So the position of the Librarian of Congress requires a presidential appointment, which I did know that. I was really pumped because we got to witness one with Obama, and that was really yep. amazing. It was I, really cool. I believe she's, well, she was the first African-American woman, and there hasn't been that many women, Mm-mm. right? Just- right. So in 1802, President Thomas Jefferson made the Librarian of Congress appointed a position. The Senate only began confirming the president's choice in 1897. So in 1984, the Library of Congress Information Bulletin explains, quote, Presidents thus have a genuine opportunity to shape and influence the Congressional Library, noting that Jefferson and the Roosevelts were among the chief executives who greatly strengthened the library's national and cultural roles. Hmm. Some librarians have held an especially significant impact on the library, too. Take A.R. Spofford, the sixth librarian of Congress, who was appointed to the post by President Abraham Lincoln in 1864. He successfully lobbied Rutherford B. Hayes, Chester Arthur, and Grover Cleveland to, Cleveland to urge Congress to legislate and fund the library's expansion. Another notable librarian of Congress was Archibald <laughs> I love that name, McLeish, and he was the first non-librarian to be nominated to the position. Huh. Interesting. I didn't know that. So FDR chose the lawyer turned writer, which political story from 2015 says raised hackles with the American Library Association and some Republicans since. Maybe- I imagine so. Yeah, he had oh, he had been an expatriate in Paris in the 1920s and rumored ooh. to be a communist sympathizer. The drama, his expatriate years resulted in him being well-connected with many literary greats of his era, including Hemingway. Oh, really? What? Okay. Wow. Hemingway wrote a- him a letter in 1943 to float the idea of becoming, quote, an accredited correspondent for the Library of Congress in World War II. Wow. 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 And as Hemingway put it, quote, not government publications or propaganda, but so as to have something good written afterwards. Well, that's cool. Whoa. So McLeish himself was a poet and he won three Pulitzer Prizes. He helped organize and restructure the library and even had a formative role in helping shape what is known as the country's poet laureate. (gasps) Oh, <gasps> okay. So, like, I'm okay with him being there. Then, yeah, I'm okay. Awesome. I don't know. I'd have to research him further, but he seems like a really cool dude. Poets tend to be cool people. Point and exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the current Librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden, is both the first... Oh, she's the first woman. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, so she yeah, 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 yeah. Is- I knew I couldn't think of any other women. Yeah, <laughs> so like, I, made- was, I was like, I think she's the first one, but like I was not certain, so I didn't want to say yes. Yeah, so she was the first woman and first African-American named to the position. At her swearing-in oh, yeah. as the 14th Librarian of Congress on September 14, wow. 2016, she said the opportunity to serve and lead the institution that is a national symbol of knowledge is a Historic moment. That's awesome. Under her leadership, the library, in the midst of an ambitious five year plan called Enriching the Library Experience, is to digitize this collection and make it accessible online, aka throwing open the treasure chest, as we like to say. Oh, I love that because so many photos have been made available just in the last few years and it's incredible. Yes. I love to look at all of it. Oh, I know. Oh, they add more than 10,000 items a day. How many people can are you?
1: working there? I was six to say, can you imagine the manpower? Wow. The interns. Oh God, I would hate that many interns. Sorry.
0: God anyway, would. says you read that right. The library adds thousands of new items every working day and receives 15,000 items every working day. But those numbers don't just include books, that's everything from book collections, foreign languages, audio materials, manuscripts, maps, microforms, sheet music, photographs To name a few, it also maintains the National Film Registry, which preserves such treasures as *The Big Lebowski*, *Jurassic Park*. What? I love them so much. And it's even collected public tweets. All right, like the presidents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it says it went on to note that as of January first, two thousand eighteen, the library began acquiring tweets on a very selective basis. I'm sure it does. And the last fun fact. Anyone 16 or older with a reader identification card may access the library. Though some rooms require researchers to be at least 18. is isn't like a neighborhood library. Visitors can't remove items from the reading rooms or library buildings. The card is valid for two years for its issue. And you can pre-register for your card up to two weeks in advance online. Hell yeah. Yeah, I, I, I want to go. Oh, man. That was so cool. All right. So do you want to kick us off with some stories?
1: Yes. All right. So Ouija boards, bad pranks, and demon toilets. Ooh. Since I have a Ouija board planchette tattoo, I figured I'd go with the Ouija board one. Sweet. Plus, Keena's afraid of demons. So. I am. Very much so. <laughs> I chose this one. <laughs> right. Hey, history nerds. Many years ago, when I was very young and my shenanigans knew no bounds, Ouija boards played central in many a bad prank. But, did my tomfoolery open a door for poop demons? Oh, no. This is a valid question. Long story short, soldiers are bored. Is this from Nick? I'm scrolling down. It's from Nick. (laughs) Uh, As soon as you mentioned
0: poop and like, yeah. yeah. "Mm."
1: It doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing. Whether it's trying to poop on lizards in the desert. What? What? Or blowing up old toilets in the desert. Or, yeah. We blew up a lot of stuff. But after listening to our interpreter in Mosul talk about gin and desert spirits, we received a pack of three Ouija boards from a lovely Texas family who sends Ouija boards
0: in care packages. Yeah, and that never crossed my mind when I was creating a care package. <laughs> me neither. Um, why – okay, here's valid. Why they thought Ouija boards
1: would be a good idea is beyond me. <laughs> We once received a dozen flashlights that were awkwardly delivered by Jordanian Customs, too. Awkward. Oh, wow. I mean, honestly, I understand the flashlights more than the Ouija boards. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, since the Boots wanted to play, we decided to give them the best show ever. Dark intent, two boards ready, candles lit. They start asking if anyone wants to talk. The planchette moves but only because we glued magnets to a small motor under the table. (laughs) A foot in the door let in a gust of wind to blow out the candles and hidden Bluetooth speakers allowed us to be hidden elsewhere and sound movement and wind. Yeah, we're assholes, but we put the special in special forces. LOL. (laughs) Yes, you do. You really do.
0: Oh, that's incredible.
1: This went on for nearly a week when we started to notice the team guys were acting funny. They seemed scared and after asking, realized the boots hadn't closed a single session. Guys were having weird dreams, hearing whispers, feeling ghost touches. Man, we fucked up and let the ghost dependas loose.
0: Oh, um I hadn't I noticed <laughs> Oh no, I caught <laughs> that. <is> the dependa. <laughs> 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 if you guys don't know they they talk about women that just go after military men and then quit their jobs They call them dependapotamuses depend yep. my dependas so just in case you know i caught yep. that <laughs> <laughs> i hadn't noticed anything till i went on patrol in the desert and
1: heard demonic laughter and farts yeah you heard me farts it would not be a Nick story without farts. Um, I <laughs> was played so by gaseous ghosts with gastrointestinal orchestras. Fucking fart demons. I love reading Nick stories. But oh. when I returned to the FOB, my guts finally decided to NASCAR everything I ate straight out of my rear echelon. As I stripped off kit, dropping bits and pieces and running nearly naked, full tilt to a closed box latrine. As I proceeded to have a firefight with my toilet tango and felt like I was going to fart hard enough to launch myself out of the roof and immediately shit out a 24.5 kilo turd, I heard that goddamn (laughs) laughter from in the toilet itself. Did you shit a demon? Oh, yeah, demon toilets. I got it. Yes. I I, I think you did. (laughs) I flew out of that porta potty door, combat knife in hand, pants around ankles, ready to attack whatever I could find. What happened next? I was the only witness to, but I shit you not, pun intended. <laughs> there was an arm clawed hand made of demonic fecal matter who was rising out of the toilet area. What? what? What followed was indescribable, but looked like a human made of shit right down to turd horns and little poo teeth. I was scared. Shitless. <laughs> I am a combat veteran. I've faced down certain death multiple times, but seeing that dingleberry demon popping out of poop with a shitty smile, my arse puckered tight enough to bend a depleted uranium penetrator.
0: (laughs) The alliteration is on point. Right? I I love some good
1: alliteration. If some fortuitousness, fortuitousness, there we go, had a person with one at that moment and they had the wherewithal to try to place said projectile near my pooper, but yeah, there was something... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that turned out to be my frag pouch with sand now on my beautiful bum i ripped an m67 loose and flung that beautiful bang ball into the porta potty you blew it up blew it up the shit <laughs> <laughs> the shit shaitan screamed it admitted a ripping wet farting sound that rather than a scream the frag blew with a muffled thump and the plastic pooper was vaporized Team guys came running, found me in a state of shit-covered shock, and slowly pulled the story out of me. Much slower than your shit, I'm sure. When I was finished, they burst into laughter, fuckers. After a long shower and a debriefing, I was given 10 days R&R, and they decided I had exposure sickness. While I was recuperating, we found the Ouija boards, apologized to all spirits, and closed the sessions and burned the fucking things. Years later in Afghanistan, someone sent us another My Little Pony themed Ouija board.
0: No, why? Who are these people? It might have been
1: set on a test range and obliterated by an Apache shooting Hydra rockets.
0: But here's
1: the dealio, history nerds. Don't fucking piss off Arab poop demons. They don't fart around. I don't have a podcast, but I would love to nerd out over conspiracies, the supernatural, cemeteries, and history or history. Cheers, Nick.
0: Oh, Nick. That...
1: <laughs> Rest in peace to your butthole.
0: Oh, you made me cackle. I don't think I've cackled in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Hats off to you, sir. Crowns I'm, off I'm, to you, sir. I'm really just blown
1: away that people sent Ouija boards to the troops. Like Monopoly, Uno. Yeah, but like Ouija boards? yeah like i sent poker stuff
0: but yeah like pringles foot powder i got so good at care packages they had to beg me to stop sending food because they were like we're getting so fat (laughs) your packages were a1 Oh, yeah, man. My favorite one. I did a Sports Illustrated one where I sent the new Sports Illustrated, but I made butts and boobs cookies. (laughs) Yes, that one was amazing. I really liked your Cinco de Mayo box. Oh, yeah. I made little pinata cookies that had sprinkles inside. And then I, I figured out how to ship cake. You can it like veggies all right so i'm gonna follow up poop demons with aliens because natural transition Do it. <laughs> hello all you kooks and nerds tis i jolly jay hi jolly jay writing from beyond the cyber webs our lovely hostesses stated that y'all need ufo stories to tidy tide you over well shit i got you this story is gonna be as boring as me on a monday morning <laughs> I'm very entertained. I don't think he gives himself enough credit. He's got really such a sweet, dry humor that I... It tickles me, as my mom would say. <laughs> i so tickled. I'm so tickled. As they, you know, he Southern women say, All right. On. Oh, God, that just came out too. the accent just did a (laughs) get it together (laughs) on a cold and dreary December night. I was in Prescott Valley, Arizona, visiting my grandparents. There's nothing out there. And I'm a city boy. It's jarring. You can see the sky, the damn sky and stars. Who knew those things existed under the lights? Well, (laughs) I'm outside having a smoke or five. It's a hell of a trip. Don't judge. And I'm taking in the sights. It's calm, peaceful, and serene. And then, and then a UFO came in and abducted me, all in caps. Excellent. I mean, oh, no. This is giving me pause. (laughs) One, how have we not heard this before? Yeah, like we've known you a minute. We have. It says the end. (laughs) I joke and now that my validity is questioned what actually (laughs) happened was like I said boring yet cool I look up and I see this object in the sky and it's moving in directions that make a break dancer impressed it would move up then curve around and then drop the base and then it would keep going for a few feet and then I lost it I looked away hella sus The following evening, the same thing. I would go for a smoke. Yes, I know. I know. And there it is. I feel high at this point. Twice. Me? They chose me? And I didn't even graduate from fucking high school? (laughs) And it says in parentheses, a lyrical reference for any tool fan out there. You're welcome. In parentheses. (laughs) This time it moved in opposite patterns. I would go down, 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 take a sharp left and shoot up. Was it a UFO? Could be. Was it my eyes playing tricks on me? That's pretty fucked up, but possible. You decide. That is fucked up of your eyes, Jolly J. Right. How dare they? How dare you? That's that's pretty cool. Like, I've heard, like, my mom says she saw a UFO one time that did that, where it would just go really fast, stop, and then it would go weird directions. And then she said one time she saw jets trying to chase it, and it couldn't keep up. So I Mm. believe it. I think there's things out there that we don't understand
1: oh yeah i think it's like real arrogant for anybody to think that we're the only species in the universe so
0: yeah and i think it's weird that you see every plane in history and then all of a sudden we have a stealth bomber where the fuck did that come from you know i alien technology exactly (laughs) i would buy that i would think that we're copying I'm sure there's some national treasure journal somewhere that details yeah. where they got that from. <laughs> that's just me. So I will do the extra AF, my nightmare fuel. I think that's from Dion.
1: Original crown wearer.
0: Oh yeah. She does wrote in the comments. It's crown time. I just got home from work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, Kina and
1: Ashley. Hey. Hey. Right. Hey girl. Hey. All right. You got me to write in again. Here's an eerie tale and the reason you don't open your eyes during sleep paralysis. Girl, I (gasps) heal you. Oh, no. I hate opening my eyes during sleep paralysis. Anyway, so I have suffered from sleep paralysis for my entire life as far as I can remember. But I didn't know that it was a thing until my late 20s. The Mayo Clinic describes it as a temporary inability to move or speak while falling asleep or upon waking. The most common symptoms are paralysis, anxiety, or hallucination. I had all three symptoms. Let oh. me tell you, by the age of six, I learned do not open your eyes.
0: Girl, yeah.
1: Oh, no. It's the worst. Um, I'm already the, freaked out. Ugh, the things I saw were absolutely horrible. There's one memory I have that still freaks me out, and it's the reason I've never opened my eyes again during an episode. I had fallen asleep on the small sofa in the living room, and at some point, I had rolled into, onto my side facing the back cushions of the sofa. When I woke up, I was unable to move and eventually started having trouble breathing, probably the anxiety.
0: Oh, no. I could hear my grandma
1: in the other room, but couldn't call out for help, so I opened my eyes, hoping to get her attention. Instead, I saw nightmare fuel for years to come. Oh, no. Oh, God, I read ahead. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> A decaying old woman <gasps> was laying directly in front of me, trying to strangle me. No, her skin was shriveled and blackened. <gasps> Think something similar to Imhotep's priest in the Mummy.
0: Oh no, 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 no. Her no, no, no. eyes
1: were there but completely black. Mm-hmm. She had long, thin hands which I could feel around my neck and oh, the nail biting into my skin. Uh, this is very haunting of Hill House, right now. By
0: the way. I need, I need my emotional support, Kitty. Where
1: are you at? Yeah. I slammed my eyes shut, because duh, and focused on moving my fingers one at a time until I could move again. When I could finally move, I opened my eyes again, only to see nothing there. Do oh. I know how long this lasted? No. Does it still happen to me? Sometimes. But I will never oh, open no. my eyes during a sleep paralysis episode again. Lesson learned. Hope this was eerie enough for you.
0: Um, yes.
1: Wow. <laughs> God, oh. oh, my God. I always see spiders Ugh. on the walls when I open my eyes during sleep paralysis, but like big ones. Like I'm talking like big ones. I
0: mm, I, I, don't like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's terrifying. Just it was a combination of all the most terrifying things you could possibly see. Yes. Standing over you trying to choke you. That's yes. horrifying. Our brains are fucked, man.
1: Right. Brains like, are the fucked. shit that our own brains put us through is awful. Yeah. Like, there's See. this fascinating book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat.
0: Oh, yeah. I remember that. I read that in college. It's good. Like, it's a really good psychological study.
1: The book that I read, it had that in there. And there was, like, six other case studies of weird stuff like that. Like, weird shit your brain would do. Like, it it just, it's fascinating to read, like, the weird crap that your brain does to you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, if anybody's ever had experience with EMDR therapy on your brain... Send me a message because I have questions. <laughs> yes. And then tell me about it after you do it because I'm fascinated. It's a tiny little tangent, but I'm going to start doing that because they explained to me how trauma works on your brain and just like a quick rundown if you like science like I do. So if you're living in a situation, I've mentioned on here that my dad was an alcoholic and my mom was sick. So there's a little trauma in my childhood. So when you're living in a time where so many things are happening at once, you don't have time to relax. So your body is in fight, flight, or flee constantly. So your brain's dumping chemicals, right, to protect you. And any kind of memory that's coming in, good and bad, can't be processed because your brain is ready to fight, flight, or flee. So everything that's happened pretty much most of my childhood, I never processed anything. So this EMDR replicates REM sleep. So when your eyes are bounced back and forth, it processes all your shit for the day. So when you're sleeping, your eyes are darting and your brain is filing away your entire day into like a file cabinet, right? Mm -hmm. So the EMDR mimics that. And then you were at the same time recounting what you remember and it makes your brain file all those memories. So oh. when it's not filed, it's like a cauldron just bubbling up. That's how she explained it to me. She's like, I just have all this stuff bubbling and it overrides my logics, my frontal lobe. Right. My logic yeah. So I was telling her for example, my husband builds race cars and he loves it and he built the car and I know it's safe and he knows exactly how everything works because he put it in there and he has everything perfect. But every time he gets in that car to race, I'm like, it's going to catch on fire and he's going to die. Right. And she said, that's called hypervigilance. Right. So it's overriding my logic. No matter how many times I tell myself, everything's okay. My Uh brain's like, no, it's not for us, you know, having trauma and then, you know, losing Amber recently, it just, it ramps it up even more. So now I feel like I'm afraid everybody's going to die and I'm afraid everything's scary. And so they said that this therapy would you know, file all that away so that logically I can deal with things like I should be able to. So it's really exciting. And I would like to know. I I watched a bunch of brain scans and it was incredible because it showed the parts of the brains lighten up like a Christmas tree before and after. And afterwards it was gone. It was filed away and their brain was functioning perfectly Mm. in a matter of like one session. So very excited about it. Cool. Yeah, brains are weird, but I would like mine to work, right? (laughs) (laughs) And she also said that hypervigilance mimics ADHD and that sometimes they are hand in hand and sometimes you don't even have ADHD. Yeah. I was like, because I've been on medications that didn't work. And she's like, well, maybe the hypervigilance is making it where it doesn't work or you don't have it at all. So I'm really excited to see what happens. Hell yeah. I will report back next month because I'm hopefully starting it soon. Back to... Who do I want to do next? Let's do, let's do my weird story. Yeah. yeah. Weird. A little weird after the aliens. It says hello, friends. Hi, friends. Hi. I live in a small town called Bernie, California. to pa- pa- California. California, a population of over 3,000 people. I'm sending a link featuring a couple of paranormal events that happen here. Hope you like it and use it one day on your show. Thank you and keep up the good work, James. Hi, James. Hi, James. James is one of our new Patreon fam. You're yet to join the Discord or Facebook so that I can be aggressively supportive of you. So (laughs) tell me everything about you. Yes, we must know you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this is an article from onlyinyourstate.com. It says, stay away from Northern California's most haunted street after dark or you may be sorry. Ooh. A lot of us brush off old ghost stories as nonsense. That is until we are broken down on the side of the road in the middle of the night and afraid of those sounds and what lies around the bend in the road. There's a few scary roads in Northern California that are rumored to be haunted, but this one in Shasta County gives us the heebie-jeebies just thinking about the story behind it. By day, the town of Bernie is a popular tourist stop on the way to Mount Shasta or Bernie Falls. Two iconic natural features in this area. They both sound lovely. I think I've heard of Shasta. Oh, there's a picture. It's really pretty. Okay, I'll show you afterwards. The town was named after Samuel Bernie, a settler in the area in the 1850s. Bernie was found dead in the valley in 1857, which came to be called the Valley where Bernie died. Oh, that's unfortunate. There's just that place over there where he died. And finally, they just shortened it to Bernie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I don't think I've ever heard that as a town naming. So, Bernie is located on State Route 299, about four miles west of its junction with State Route 89. It's located way out in the countryside, meaning there's no streetlights to guide your way home. Even if you don't believe in ghosts, the pure darkness can be intimidating. Bernie is allegedly the site of a mysterious haunting that plagues drivers through the night. Ooh, those creep me out. Because you think you're safe in your car? Yeah, no. And then people remind you that you're not. (laughs) You're not safe anywhere. You are not. On Black Ranch Road, there is a ghost of a little girl, ooh, ghost children, with holes for eyes. Oh, no. Who yep. appear primarily to drunk drivers. Well, you kind of deserve it if you're a drunk Yeah, driver. you are on that one. Yeah. Says, if you foolishly decide to get behind the wheel, your likelihood of seeing this ghost on the way home increases exponentially. <laughs> yeah, don't be that person. No, thanks. She haunts Black Ranch Road, which is a road that runs close to the parallel of Highway 89, is a forested, scary route. Oh, it is really scary. Even <laughs> if you are sober and clear-headed, so it's one of it's probably like back home. Like even if you're sober, yeah. driving through a lot of these areas in the mountains and stuff is really scary. And mm-hmm. I drove off one when, when I was a teenager, and I was sober. I just had a broke car. <laughs> <It's> very scary. <laughs> anyway. Because she usually only appears to drunk drivers, critics who don't believe in ghosts may assume the story is told to inc- increase tipsy would-be drivers to stay off the road and call a taxi. I could understand that, too. No one knows quite who the ghost was when she lived. It's said that she's malicious rather than benevolent. Okay. Those who have seen her say it's more likely she is eagerly waiting for them to wreck their vehicle rather than being a spirit who looks out for them in a dangerous position. So that I don't like. Like, I'm just waiting for you to fuck up. I'm not going to help you yeah <laughs> no, thanks. yeah it's been speculated that she is a, oh, a demon who will only show herself to drunken drivers because the alcohol incites an altered state of consciousness which opens mm-hmm. up an individual to supernatural experiences that makes sense yeah it does but i also don't like it yeah She's not only one haunting this road either. Oh, good. There's a man who has been seen walking at night in a fancy suit. He's thought to be the same ghost who haunts the Bartle House, a nearby haunted residence. It sounds to me like he just needs to get out and stretch his legs every once (laughs) in (laughs) a while. Whether or not you believe in the paranormal, it's best to exercise caution and as we all know, stay off the road if you've had anything to drink. Nice. Let me show you the pictures. This is a beautiful area. Hmm. Lucky you. So there's the mountain. Oh wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, coffee shop. Look at the sky.
1: Ooh, oh, I
0: miss seeing the stars. It's just a creepy child. I don't. Child. Think it's a, and like that's the road Of That looks like back home. You yeah, know, like it read does. the Springs area. Yeah. It's really, yeah, really hard to drive in normally. Yeah. Well, thank you for writing in, James. Yeah. So
1: I'm gonna read Meg Byres. A <laughs> short sure. little submission. Okay, so she says the only sort of morbid family history I have is on my husband's side. His family settled in what is today Carthage, Illinois in the 1830s. The Byrie family farm is still there and operating today. Anywho, a few years back, while we were attending my husband's grandfather's funeral, I discovered that a Byrie man was part of the mob that killed Joseph Smith, the founder slash prophet of the Mormon church. (gasps) Apparently, this dude was so proud of his notoriety that he claimed to have fired the fatal bullet and put that fact on his gravestone. Jury is still out on whether he actually did it, though. (laughs) Honestly, I probably would have put it on my gravestone, too. (laughs)
0: Wow. That's intense. What a mic drop. Right? Like, all right. So the last one. Hello, Keena and Ashley. I'm a big fan. And this pod has really came in clutch for maintaining my sanity. Oh. honestly i can't thank y'all enough for that anywho i heard your call for a fun historical town nugget and i'm here to deliver i'm from alaska and while i get asked a lot if we live in igloos we do not i do know of one <laughs> 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 it's a link it says an eerie abandoned hotel in alaska igloo city is oddly fascinating if you live in alaska chances are that you've been asked if you if you live in an igloo, well, no, we do not. <laughs> in fact, we never really have. Igloos were used a long time ago as temporary shelters when you're out on a long trip, emergency shelters, or if you were caught in bad weather. Let's face it, no one wants to spend a bunch of time and effort in a building that's going to melt as soon as the temperature rises. True. But this abandoned hotel in Alaska may offer another option when the traditional ice and snow carved igloo. So the next best thing to do is pull the Alaskan persona would be to build a ginormous, round, white structure that mimics everyone's idea of the igloo, right? (laughs) (laughs) According to one man, the answer was yes. But in true Alaskan fashion, he decided to go big or go home. Instead of just building himself an igloo-like house to live in, he set out with the intention to build a massive hotel for residents and visitors alike to enjoy. (laughs) That's a damn igloo right there. Wow. I love it. All right. So as if you live in Alaska or you've ever visited and headed north from Anchorage to Denali, is it Denali? Am I saying yeah. that right? Okay. Or south to Fairbanks to Anchorage, chances are that you've seen this giant round igloo structure on the side of the road. But if you blink, you probably missed it. It's located on marker. 188.7 on the east side of George Parks Highway. This abandoned hotel is south of Denali National Park and Preserve and it is a true tourist destination all in itself and one odd place to be in Alaska. The nearest town to the Igloo City is Cantwell, located 20 miles away with a population with just 250. So that's kind of like where I grew up. Yeah. Very small. Hmm. The cities of Anchorage and Fairbanks are both over two and a half hours away. It's very isolated and it was constructed in the late 1970s by Leon Smith. Leroy Jenkins. I don't know why. Leroy Jenkins. <laughs> he envisioned it as a hotel, though it was never completed due to code violations. Oh. The building suffers from undersized windows, which do not meet code. In addition to some other code violation issues, the inadequate window size is the main reason it was never operational. Well, oh. that kind of sucks. It does suck. All that work for your windows to be what Yeah. Doesn't? Because the building was or, too big to be demolished, it remained standing for over four decades. Wow. It's so large that airplanes can see it over 30,000 feet high in the air. Huh. It was meant to mimic that of an igloo, but it's four stories inside and it's said to be constructed of 888 sheets of plywood and ure- urethane outside insulation.
1: Okay. Wow. That's. All right. I'm impressed. I am too. I hate that it's just sitting there. Like you could do something with that.
0: It kind of reminds <sighs> me of Star Wars. Like some of the it movies. It does. In the movies. It does, yeah. Uh, Because of the remote location, predators such as bears and wolves are in the nearby area and have been said to use this igloo as a shelter. Oh, no. Perfect. Moose also in this area. Okay. Moose, I've heard that they give no fucks and they will ruin your day. You pay to watch a live stream of
1: bear inside this igloo. (laughs) Me too
0: extreme winter conditions, precipitation levels make this a dangerous area as well to navigate. Snow levels are known to get well over five feet in this area, making it very difficult to explore. So it says Alaska is a very wild and unforgiving state and exploring remote locations is not something you should do unless you're very prepared. But if you are in the area, you should check out this awesome and eerie abandoned roadside hotel. Well, that's cool. I don't think I've ever heard of this. That is Awesome. That is awesome. Thank you for sending that in. Yeah, thank you to everybody
1: who sent stuff in. That's absolutely.
0: Cool. It's amazing.
1: I mean, we love I, you. My husband used to live in Alaska, and I haven't asked him if he worked in or he lived in an igloo. So now I have to ask him
0: when I get off here. Report back to us. I will. <laughs> yeah, he lived there for a little bit, not very long, like probably a month or so. But he loved it. Yeah. So did Terry. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for sending in. If you want to send in a story for I next know. month, that's historicalafpod at gmail.com. Yeah. Do it. Right now. One, two, three, go. Yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> bye. 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 bye.